Welcome to Season 10 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from across the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. I want to thank all of you for watching. Our first 100 episodes garnered over 20,000 organic views. I couldn't do it without you. Please share, please subscribe, and enjoy the show. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today, I am joined by the fabulous Daniel Hires, who is a social entrepreneur, an ecosystem builder, a facilitator, who currently serves as the Director of Partnerships and Communications for the Inner Development Goals, the IDGs. He has 15 years experience working at the intersection of technology and business, community, social innovation, and human-centered design. He is passionate about co-creating a beautiful future in which we meet the converging planetary crises with graceful and equitable solutions that regenerate nature and our inner ecology. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me, Anita. Oh, that's very nice to hear those words spoken, actually. They sound so big in the end. I, I care about the future, I guess, is the short version. Uh, yes, and you have been caring about the future for a very long time. I went back to your TEDx talk, which I'm going to include in the show notes below. Uh, it was taped, I guess, almost 10 years ago, uh, I want to say maybe eight years ago in Korea. And it's an incredible talk. Um, I, I, I hope people will watch it. And something you say, and it really caught my attention, you said, we get together to consume instead of to create. Can you say more about that? I love that you picked that one, because this is really, I think, at the core of something that I used to try to kind of change in the world and and that still like has been a bit of a red thread until today and so yeah to me I think that a lot of the ways that we interact with each other but even that we also experience ourselves um, outside of the workplace is about consumption it is not where we get together to cook a dinner with friends, but we cook it alone and then we invite them or we just go straight up to a restaurant where someone else has cooked for us and we just pay them. Um, we go to um, experiences where we go to a movie theater or we go to a regular theater and there we just, you know, we kind of pay, we sit in the audience, we're passive together. And then afterwards, we maybe, you know, go to the bar and have a few drinks around that. But I think uh, what I have experienced is that when we get together and get people into creating things, into building things, and whether that is just something that is uh, intellectually, that we get together and discuss ideas or how we could solve something, or it's actually physically coming together, building something with our hands, like a chair or doing some gardening work or or something, I think that my grandfather used to actually say that that's when you can really look into the soul of someone else when you're creating together. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's so deeply true and has gotten so lost in our current society. And um, I think I mentioned that in the talk, like we're so used to thinking of ourselves as productive only in the workplace. Yeah. Um, however, once we go home, then, then we're yeah, kind of all, almost enticed to uh, being only in consumer mode. And I think uh, if we can reclaim that, if we can get back into feeling like uh, we are here to contribute as well in our private time, then I think that's that's a change that I would like to see. 
I also think that's probably, you know, same ethos could be applied to sort of the political arena, getting citizens engaged in the political process as part of democracy, a vibrant democracy. But my big yeah. takeaway from what you said is we invite people over to dinner once we finished preparing the meal and not preparing it with them. And I'm going to I'm going to find a way in the next few months to invite friends over and we'll cook together. So thank you for that gift right at the top of our conversation. We have many more questions to go. Okay, so I wonder if you could share um, sort of some of the major turning points in your life that led you to where you are today. Any books you've read or classes you've taken or lived experiences? I just want to get to know you a little and I want the audience to get to know you a little bit. Sure, I mean, the the first turning point really happened very early on. I was barely conscious, but um, I actually don't know my birthday. So I was found on the streets of Seoul in South Korea when I was a few days old, like in a movie, in a basket in front of a doorstep. And then I was brought to a foster family from there and spent my first three months with a foster family. And then I was adopted by a German mom and an American dad, that's where the accent comes from, uh, to, to Germany. And I grew up in between those two countries. So I think that was really one of the, the first things. And I often get asked if there was this kind of moment of epiphany when I kind of realized that I want to do something or change something. And, and to me, there has never really been that, but it's been growing up with kind of this realization. I, I would find it a bit sad, to be honest, if then what I would do with my life after, you know, like having been, been saved, I think, um, that I would just, you know, kind of get a lot of money for pushing papers left to right. No, I for me, it was always clear. I want to do something. And I think growing up between two cultures also showed me that it's possible that what other, you know, eight, nine-year-old children around me would see as, okay, this is reality. This is how the world is. For me, it was always like, this is how the world is here. I know a completely different reality where, of course, we still have gravity, but, you know, things work a little bit different and, and uh, different things are important for people. And I um, realized, I think, very early on that a lot of the things that are that we're surrounded by are, are human made. And that must mean that they are changeable. And I wanted to always then contribute a little bit to to kind of changing that. Interesting. I think, the human construct yeah. of difference and otherness and yeah. what your identity is. You must be able to sort of code switch, I guess, all over the place, but realize that we don't need to code switch if we actually kind of honor each other's gifts and authenticity. And I, I sort of sense that that's sort of what are some of your values. Yeah, definitely. However, then there is an element of that some code switching is necessary to then transmit a certain meaning to to someone just in a different context. I mean, just as you know, it would be ludicrous to speak to someone who doesn't speak in, uh, who doesn't speak Spanish to just you know come at them and speak to them in German. You're not going to reach anything. You do need to find kind of that that language, that bridge that can connect to them. And that doesn't only have to be, I think, the language. It can also be nonverbal and on an emotional mm -hmm. level. But um, yeah, I, I have been always concerned about how can we kind of, how can I get to what's in here into, you know, like someone else and, and that transmission, you know, which I guess is called communication. That has always been interesting to me. 
Yeah, that and cognitive empathy, the capacity to understand yeah. where someone else is coming from and meet them where they're at. Um, okay, so the sustainable development goals are meant to address the converging planetary crises, right? And I, I, I don't imagine that anybody who's watching or listening doesn't know about them. But just in case, mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about the SDGs and what they are before we get into the IDGs. Sure. So the way I have realized or come to the SDGs was actually through the MDGs, the Millennium Development Goals, which were kind of the predecessor in some ways. And um, it was a little bit of a kind of nerdy corner of the world of people who are working in development, who kind of said, we need to paint a bigger picture and we need to understand, you know, what are the things that we're working on? And um, so they came up with the Millennium Development Goals. It was, uh, it was, I think, eight or 10 goals that were supposed to be delivered by the Millennium by 2000, um, or, or they were initiated then. I, I'm not 100% sure, but then we went from the Millennium Development Goals to the, um, to we needed some kind of uh, thing to follow up because we had not really reached all of them. And even reaching those MDGs was still far away from like the, the better world that our hearts know is possible. So uh, then the continuation was the SDGs. And the SDGs was an attempt to make it broader, to make it more kind of encompassing of, of different work that is happening. And there was a hope, I remember, that this could also become more mainstream. And I think now, as you've mentioned, many more people have been engaged with the SDGs. I think it's been very um, successful in kind of breaking out of the development sector. And a lot of corporations are now talking about which SDGs they align with, a lot of, a lot of people, events. Um, I, I see it in a lot of places. And to me, I think it's it's really great. Some people think it's a simplistic reduction of a complex reality. And that is very right. But I think language is the same thing. And if we want to be able to, to kind of communicate with each other about what we're doing and what we care about, we need to have some kind of like reduction of that complexity and, and have a language. And that is the SDGs. Right. And there's a lot of overlap. I mean, there's 17 in total. Some look at gender, mm. some look at health, some are looking at climate, biodiversity, but also partnerships is one of them. So I think that kind of crosses all boundaries. Okay. So that's the yeah. snapshot of the UN SDGs. And I might put up a little pick right here so people can take a quick look at it if they've never seen the 17 all next to one next to the other. If you're enjoying this conversation, I bet you'll love reading my book, Purposeful Empathy tapping our hidden superpower for personal, organizational, and social change. We are living in the era of a massive empathy deficit, but humans are wired to care and we can become more empathic with practice. And the more you do, the better you'll feel. Please visit your favorite online retailer and order your copy today. All right, so now let's talk about the SDGs. I actually plan to um, include a video that was produced by your organization. So why don't I pop that in right now? Assume that it's going in right here. The Inner Development Goals show what inner shifts or human growth needs to happen in order for us to increase our chances of reaching the Sustainable Development Goals collectively. 
The Inner Development Goals covers 23 skills that are divided into five categories. Skills such as inner compass, openness and learning mindset, self-awareness, presence, sense-making, connectedness, humility, co-creation skills, trust and perseverance. What I see as the basic human challenge, when we talk about mind shift, when we talk about growth that matters, I think the basic human challenge is this. It is difficult to learn if you already know. We see a lot of leadership failure. Leaders being out of touch with reality. So in other words, it's a lack of listening. So listening, I believe, is not just an important one. It's the most important and most underrated leadership skill today. Obviously, being flexible, uh, being able to be agile, being able to listen, to listen, and be able to be very inclusive in terms of how you, you lead people. I think those are some of the things that I've learned over the time. We are built to grow. It is our destiny to grow. A caterpillar is not supposed to die as a caterpillar. Its destiny is to grow wings and fly. We need to sort of focus more inwards and what is my responsibility in that? What can I contribute to a development that is more sustainable? But in order to be able to reach those sustainability goals, we need to also be able to take the right decisions to get there. And I think where we are today, perhaps, is we've hit a limit to purely technocratic external solutions to solve global problems. Mental health and well-being is supported by our inner capacities for spirituality and faith. Where education is fundamentally oriented towards meaning and purpose in a changing world, rather than uh, mere content delivery for students. Being human has many dimensions and that the dimension that we have been very good at exploring during the last couple of hundred years has been the external world. But that we have come to a point where the outside perspective has to be complemented by uh, an inside perspective. Teaching a course like Global Challenges at Stockholm School of Economics, I realize more and more that we cannot reach the sustainability goals if we do not work with our inner development. This does not apply only to universities. This applies to all sectors, all ages. What we really need is a deliberately developmental society. And depending on how severe you think the situation is, maybe we need a deliberately developmental world. And right now we're not even talking about, at scale, the inner dimensions and how we need to change. Because at the core, we are the problem. The way that we're acting in the world and the way that we are solving problems is the problem. I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address those problems. But I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with those, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. Any sustainable development goal, that's essentially our generation's big ambitious vision for the world. In our experience, when we work with individuals, both within and outside Oxford, people are more likely to take action when these inspiring visions are brought down to their level. We bring now uh, the Inner Development Goals with us as a great source of inspiration when we strengthen and revise our competence development roadmaps uh, and make sure that the, the Inner Development Goals are integrated into this. 
And as Einstein said, we are never going to be able to solve our problems with the same order of consciousness that created these problems. So as a species, we need more and more of us to grow and develop so that we have actually a bigger purchase on, a bigger perspective on, a bigger ability to solve the biggest, most dangerous uh, kinds of challenges that we face. To make the world work better requires highly specialized skills, very useful, but quite high level skills. And so what we want to say to people is, yes, it's great that you want to help make the world work better, but you have to get into training. Welcome back after that inspiring video. Um, I wonder whether or not you could share what your, um, why you feel called to work on this and what you feel the, the, um, the mission of the IDGs is about and how you hope it spreads in the world. So yeah, thank you very much. I love that video. That video is also really what got me interested in the IDGs. And uh, so it's, it's great to see. Um, I, I think the where I'm coming from was that I have been working with social entrepreneurs who wanted to uh, use business methodologies for real impact and change in the world. And what I saw over the last kind of five, six years before I got engaged with the IDGs was that there was a lot of the problems that we see in kind of in the startup world are being replicated also in the in the social startup world you know like uh, if an investor gives you certain kpis to hit you're going to find ways to hit them as uh, as a founder uh if if there's um like pressure from from investors you know to make their money back i think then you can quickly get into a mission drift and with this pressure oftentimes uh, it doesn't even have to come from an investor. It can come from the founding team or just from a desire to do more good in the world faster, uh, that we then put pressure on ourselves. We put pressure on our teams. We build structures that are unsustainable. And um, I would see a lot of people who who got burnt out on this. And to me, I think if we're trying to change something, burnout is replicating the status quo. And that's not the right way to, to doing things. There's this, this one quote that I used to find really funny. And it's like uh, that when I went, when, as a startup founder, I slept every night like a baby. I woke up every four hours and I cried. <laughs> and I mean, it, it is funny. It, uh, but, you know, to me, in a way, I think that if this is still how we're building kind of social startups that are trying to change something, if we're only looking at what we are changing so that we're adding some impact or maybe even completely replacing the profit motive for impact, I don't think that's enough. I think we need to get at the how we build these organizations so that they can be healthier organizations that are not going to burn out ourselves and our employees, because that's not going to change anything. Right. That makes so much sense. I And I, I feel like it's speaking directly to me, but probably a lot of people listening. 
that we want to do so much. We want to have an impact. Our inbox is always full. There's always like more things on our list of to-do list than there are the number of hours in the day that we need to get things done without even taking into consideration the rest that we need, the relationship time that we need, and just uh, the play that we need. So it's great to hear you say that then how do you actually operationalize that as a person? Are there are there things that you do personally, Daniel, that live in concordance with the IDGs so that you are finding the balance that you want to bring into the world? The beauty that so, we all know, our, that our hearts, what did you say? It was so fa fabulous. The beauty, say it again. The beautiful world that our hearts knows are, uh, that our hearts know are pos is possible. It's a quote uh, from Charles Eisenstein. Actually. Yes, his book. Yes, that's where yeah. I recognize it. Okay, great. Yeah, it's such a beautiful frame. Okay, so yeah, yeah. what are your practices? Well, I mean, I don't want to stand here and be like, okay, you know, like I have the truth and just, you know, like uh, I do everything well. But I think in the IDGs, we do a few things uh, very intentionally in order to, to slow things down. Um, so in our meetings, we, I think there's hardly a meeting that we do that uh, doesn't start with a check-in with everyone. And obviously, sometimes when you have 20 people meetings, uh, it can take half an hour until everyone is checked in. But the, what we then do is we don't react by saying, okay, let's skip the check-in. But then it makes us think, do all 20 people need to be in this meeting or can we restructure the way this meeting is held? And, you know, not to then exclude people and say like, okay, now 10 people can come to the meeting and 10 can't. But then we think about, okay, how, you know, like who needs to meet when and where? Um, because, yeah, it is also difficult to be present to listen to 20 people's, you know, check in and where, where they're coming from. Um, however, if it's a group of five, eight, 10 people, I think it's really valuable to understand if someone is having a stressful day or someone just got out of a, a call and has like some follow-ups they have to do and they're still trying to remember to write that email or if they're just having a really stressful day because their child is sick or so. That changes, I think, the way that we then interact with each other, engage in, in, the, in the meeting. Another meeting practice that is great is that we try to remind each other of taking a breath, of just kind of taking a moment and saying, okay, we'll take 30 seconds and we'll just breathe. In our weekly team meetings, we also do a short uh, meditation at the beginning. That's like because there we have it already planned. We don't always do that with, with each of our external meetings and everything. But I think from this meeting culture, we can already see that there are just small things that we can do to, to just slow us down a little bit and remind us about looking inside because I mean this is not just an exercise to do because it's nice to take a break or so or that that you know it, it sounds maybe that it's unproductive but in this moment what I at least am doing I don't know what everyone else is but it gives me a second to also not just look at the outrospection but also look inside how am I doing oftentimes when we do the meditation we have a body scan in there so I can kind of just have a moment to see like how, how is my body doing how are my emotions doing right now uh, is there anything you know am I really excited about something and do I maybe need to let that kind of out um, or, or you know is there something in me that uh, just doesn't feel so secure that day and uh, wants to rather listen to other people 
So those are some some small examples. Um, I think in the larger kind of way that the IDGs act is that one thing that I really loved about the IDGs when I came in, because it resonated so much with the way that I try to be present in the world, is that I just kind of give everyone unconditional trust from the beginning. Mm. I think I, I don't want to live in a world where I'm always distrustful to other people as the first impulse. I think I, I am fully aware that I will be uh, taken advantage of in, uh, I don't know, 5%, 10% uh, of the instances. And, and that is fine. Like, to me, I, I've made peace with that idea. But what I do not want is that I want to turn that into bitterness, where then I say, ah, because once I tried this and I trusted them and it didn't work out, now I will not trust any stranger in the street ever again. Um, so, and, and that is also how the IDGs operates. So it's, it's not always very transactional, um, in a way that, that there's a lot of trust and, um, a lot of belief that, yeah, the people that come and engage with this, they, they do have a deep intention and desire to do good. We all understand that there are pressures on us and, um, you know, sometimes priorities shift and sometimes people cannot hold their word. But I think to to assume the best in everyone as as a baseline, I think that's something that, yeah, I really, that's, I really connected with. That's powerful and profound. And I also know that you walk that talk because I had an experience with you not too long ago where you posted a message on LinkedIn, not in an accusatory cancel culture way like shaming way but a question of curiosity to your network what should I do because I've been invited on to to speak on a panel uh, and I've just discovered that we are I thought we were going to be two me and someone else uh, having a conversation possibly with a moderator now there are three panelists and all of them are men and I've made it um, you know a, a point that I, I would like to speak on panels with greater diversity so what should I do and you even said I don't think the organizers are are are, are being intentionally uh, I, I just don't think they've thought this through and I found that such and all of the people who responded I read the entirety of the thread and the reason I know that because I was invited to be the moderator after that <laughs> maybe I was the token woman I don't know but I found that your network responded with so much grace and really great um, uh, feedback or advice about what you could do and I th thought there was just a moment for learning so it opened up just by virtue of you saying hey what do you think what can I do instead of like this is what's happened to me <clears throat> I'm gonna pull out or I feel wronged by them I just feel that that's it's it's um it's a sweeter way of being in the world yeah yeah, and I, I really believe in this idea of calling people in rather than calling them out. There's a great TED talk out there about that. But I, yeah, I think what I have noticed is that this is just much more effective. The other thing might make you feel, I don't know, like righteous when you go home. Oh, I told them off and everything. But the other thing, I mean, I've I've had discussions where just, you know, we come from very opposite sides of the spectrum. But because I don't assume that someone is the enemy just because they have a certain opinion, but that I even sometimes remind them perhaps of something that we share or something that 
um, is, is, is common to us and a common value that there might be an incongruence in the way that they see it. And I think to be fair enough uh, to also be open to maybe that I'm seeing it, you know, in, in a wrong way and then open to that. I think that is just much more effective and yeah. Hallelujah. Amen to that. <laughs> so I have a couple more questions and I know we're, we're running out of sure. time, but um, empathy and compassion is one of the 23 skills. So I see on the board behind you there, it's in five columns and within them, there are a number of sub skills. So the, one of them is, well, the empathy compassion um, combo. So why are they so important in your mind? Well, I think they're in the column of relating. And I think that's probably for most people, one of the first things that comes up when they're, when they think about relating, because how could we relate, especially to each other without any form of, of empathy? And I think to me, it is about and maybe, I don't know, like if all your viewers will go along with this, but to me, I think it's, it's about this idea that we kind of have been told the story, and I'm coming back to Charles Eisenstein here, that we're all just these individual selves walking around the world completely independent from each other. We have no relation. And to me, I think what we've lost is kind of seeing how are we dependent on each other? How are we interrelated and interlinked um, because I don't see that, you know, we are all kind of just whatever I do is not going to affect someone else. I mean, not it, it's probably not exactly like this idea of the butterfly effect that, you know, you can have a direct cause and, and effect. But I do think that um, the way that we show up in the world is also kind of then mirrored in the way that we receive it back. I I do think that um yeah there is there is something there is more that we have in common with each other and that binds us together than is kind of than that separates us mm -hmm. that's not to say that we're not you know like individuals on on you know a certain level and that we can have you know like our personality or so but to me i always think of when we look at an ant colony it's very hard for us to even say like, ah, look at this ant. This ant is the, you know, the smartest, the best, the strongest ant. Uh, but we look at it more as a, as, a, as a collective and what these ants can do and like how they can reach a leaf if they just like start crawling all on top of each other. And I think there's a lot of power in understanding us as humans more like this rather than it's it's kind of this individualistic world and you know like uh, the more you have the less i will have or you know that that way of thinking but i think we are in a way you know like one kind of group or collective as humans and then i think the next step of that is that our place then also as humans is just one of the spots in nature and I think if going down this route, we're really, we, we come, I think, to uh, a place where we understand better of, of why are we here or what could be really our purpose as humans here on this planet. And to me, in a way, ultimately, like in a very short way, it is to serve life. 
And I know another Daniel, Daniel Christian Wall. I love how he mm. uh, says that um, life is, now I'm just blanking on it, but that uh, kind of life creates the conditions for more life. Mm. That that is, is the idea for it. And when I sometimes look at the way that we're dealing with our planet and our ecosystem destruction, then I, I think that just makes it so clear to me that we we need quite a big shift in the way that we relate to, to life around us. Yeah, we're going to include information about Charles's book and the regenerative book that you're referring to, right, in the show notes yeah. again, because they're, they're just so good. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I wanted to ask about inner ecology, but I also want to ask purposeful empathy story. Do you have time for two last questions? Yeah, let's do it. Great. So in the intro, um, I, it me I mentioned that you are really, uh, you care deeply about our inner ecology. I kind of sense what you mean by that, but maybe you could speak to that specifically. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, I think that everything that we do on the external then originates from some impulse on on the inside and i think there there's a lot to to unravel there i mean if we listen to people like gabor mate who works a lot on kind of trauma also in relationship to to addiction or or that um that that we're all carrying a package and i think that if we do not realize that and if we kind of just try to to avoid that uh i think it keeps us in the cycle of never being I, I don't like to use the word happy but like to to really feeling fulfilled in a way and i think this lack of fulfillment is one reason why we search for fulfillment in the external whether that is i need to buy a new a motorcycle or handbag or whether that is I need some form of success in in my professional life or or you know with, with other people perhaps even um and I think that 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 is all trying to compensate for something that is is working on the inside and so that's why I think we need to go or, or we need more awareness out there that the a, a true path to yeah, now it comes again to, to this happiness or to being more fulfilled in life is not necessarily just in what you have or that external world, but it is in also in how you relate to kind of your own trauma, your story and, and your history. And I sense from you uh, through this conversation, you know, the inner package that you have, you, you've probably spent some time really working through, um, because I sense in your facial expression as we're talking, there's a lightness of being in you that I find very contagious and very like attractive as a human. Um, I just wanted to acknowledge that. Like I really uh, feel very touched through this conversation. So Daniel, I love um, ending my conversations with guests with one question, which is if you can think of a time in your life, it could be small, medium, large, recent, long time ago, doesn't matter. Um, a time when you were on the receiving end of purposeful empathy or empathy um, and what it meant for you. 
I think I'm often on the, the receiving end of empathy and I'm not even really aware of it. But um, I mean, the one thing that really comes up when you when you say that, um, there was a story that happened uh, a bit ago um, where where I was in kind of like some away days or, you know, like a little bit of a retreat setting. And it was a group of around 15 to 20 people. And um, I was the only person of color in that group. And I'm quite used to it because I grew up in Europe and, you know, like this is uh, like my, my surroundings. But um, it was also that the in, at the beginning of the meeting or, or the first day, um, the, the topic of, of, of race or of in general, like kind of uh, um, uh, colonialism and, and uh, these topics was, was kind of put on the agenda somewhere. And then as it goes, you know, like when you're doing this type of weekend, a lot of topics come up and they like are put on the parking lot. And, you know, like uh, we, we hadn't really then gotten to that topic yet. And... Uh, it was the last day and we were kind of just deciding kind of what then we we're going to spend the last afternoon with. And I, uh, you know, just kind of like raised my hand and I said, you know, this was not something that I put on the agenda, but I wanted to highlight that this will be much more difficult to speak on if, you know, we're on a Zoom call or something like the fact that we're here today actually is is really good for this topic. And um, in the end, it it kind of then became the topic, but then it also became a bit my topic, you know, then everyone was looking at me as, okay, you are leading this conversation, you're facilitating this, you kind of, you know, like brought this, brought this in, and, you know, it, it, it started to feel a bit uncomfortable, and I think it was also because everyone else was uncomfortable in having, I think, this, this conversation, and there yeah, it was just like the emotions were kind of like running a bit with it, like, and then some people were also looking to like, who's leading the circle, and then it was like, but Daniel, you're leading this right, and I was like, well, I, I guess so, but, you know, inside I was kind of thinking, but I'd rather not really be in charge of leading it, because then there's also some things that I want to share with that, and in in that discomfort that I was sitting in, uh, there was just like a person who kind of, you know, like, spoke up sitting two seats next to me and was like Daniel I, like I, I'm sensing you know a bit of uncomfort there you know would you like me to continue leading that meeting and that was I mean I'm, I'm tearing up as I'm saying it but it was just you know so so wonderful because it was exactly what I needed in that moment and yeah I just like that story because you know like such a small thing of you know being an ally to like, you know, someone who's who's experiencing some kind of discrimination or injustice that that you're not in, like that that little thing of just you know like making something visible, and standing up. I, yeah, I really appreciated that. Well, I love that story, and I'm moved as I have been through our whole conversation. I really feel it in my heart. I really feel so the good feels. Um, and I the reason I love ants you know, landing on this question is that I never know what I'm going to hear from my guests, but it always reminds me in these conversations how accessible empathy is and what a real big, profound difference it makes in the lives of people. So why wouldn't we do it, you know, more often? Because we can. 
we can be more generous, we can be more empathic. And I think, um, I think these little shifts that happen to people on a more regular basis could really, could really change the world. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate you, Daniel. I want to thank all my viewers and listeners. We'll see you next week at Purposeful Empathy. Thank you for watching another episode of Purposeful Empathy. Remember, this show is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from across the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. If you want to get involved, share this video, subscribe to this channel. See you next week. Thank you so much.